I kept thinking it, it almost, some of these things almost seemed to be contradictory, but uh, hopefully by the time we were finished, we see how it, it does fit together. And it's, I want to talk to us about being unique, being separate, but being together. And each of us, whether we would like to admit it <clears throat> or not, has a unique purpose in the kingdom of God. A lot of times we don't want to think that. Um, but the truth is that God has not called any of us to become a placeholder on a pew. We are called for a specific purpose. In fact, God knows every, all the specific details about what makes us, well, what makes us us. After all, he created us. And he didn't create us by accident, but he, rather to be that unique person that he has purposed for us to be. Jeremiah understood that. Look what Jeremiah wrote in Jeremiah 1 and 5. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. So Jeremiah was saying that God knew before he was ever born what he had called Jeremiah to do. And I think before each of us were born, God also knew what we were called to do. Now, that doesn't mean we have to do it, but there is a calling on our lives. It's up to us whether or not we follow that calling. <clears throat> I also think that David realized that every part of his being was known and purposed by God. Look in, in Psalm 139, verses 1 through 4. O oh Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O oh Lord. So I, again, I think David realized that, that God knew him completely and created him for a specific reason. We are all unique. We are created to be indwelled by the creator of all that exists. And that makes us all very special to him. Although we are created uniquely in the way that God has created us, we are also called to be like Christ. And in, herein lies the problem for some people. Because some people say, well, how can we be different but all be like Christ? And too many people take this when we say we, want it, we are supposed to be like Christ as to the meaning that we have to walk around like a lot of uh, a bunch of little clones of the pastor or the Sunday school teacher, or as I've described it before, as cookie cutter Christians, stamped out and one just like the next one. Where when you when you watch them walk out of the church, everybody looks exactly alike. They have all the same mannerisms, and they've become just almost robotic in their living for Christ. That's not how God created us. He created us to be unique. And I don't think that was so that when we got saved, we could all act exactly alike. Amen. I'll say it. I need a little amen button. I simply do not believe. Stay with me, even if you don't agree with what I'm saying. Stay with me for just a minute. Maybe by the time we're through, you might change your mind. I simply do not believe... That is what God has called us to be, if it were. I don't believe that's what God has called us to do. 
I don't believe God has called us to all be exactly alike. If it were, then why did God lead Jeremiah and David to write the things they wrote? They wrote about how unique each of us were. And if we were all supposed to look and act and do everything exactly alike, then why would those scriptures be in the Bible? I believe that in our character we are to be like Christ, but as individuals we are to be like that, individuals. If we are exactly alike, and if some of you were here during the conference, and I, I spoke about this in the, the conference a couple weeks ago, if we all are exactly alike, then we will all also have the exact same impact on the exact same group of people. The definition of a unique is being without an equal, being the only one. So if we truly are unique, then there is no one else just like us. We are the only one that is like us. We are all like Christ, but we are unique in the way that we live for Christ and we become like him. I would say that in this definition, many of you can see yourself that you are without an equal and you're the only one, and probably others are looking and saying, praise God that that's the case. And again, I believe that one of the reasons that God has made us unique is so that we can reach out to different groups of people. You are able to reach people that I can't reach, and hopefully I can reach people that you can't reach. Why? Because we're different people. We approach people differently. We can relate to different people in different ways. And again, I think that's why it's important for us to be unique as we are like Christ. You say, well, reach them with what? Reach them with the gospel. Look at Matthew 28, 19. It says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. What is our call? Our call as a Christian is to make disciples of all nations, to go into the world and spread the gospel, making them followers of Christ and disciples of Christ, not followers or disciples of us. And sadly, there have been too many people that felt like their calling was to go out into the world and bring people into the church and make them just like them. And that's not what the Scripture says. It's talking about going out and making the world disciples of Christ. Now, here is what seems to be a contradiction to some people. We as individuals are called to be unique, but at the same time to be like one person. And that's Christ. And as I, that was the, the conundrum that I found myself in. As being different, but being all like Christ. And here's, here's another way to look at it. We are all created as unique individuals, but for a single purpose. We are all called to be like Christ. We are all called to be different from the world in the way that we exhibit our values. Starting to make a little bit more sense? <clears throat> so how do I do that? Well, since we don't wear uniforms, we really don't. Some people believe that when you come to church you have to wear a uniform, but that's not the case. The best way to show where our allegiance lies is by living distinctly Christian lives. Now, there were some churches that would say, well, if you, everybody dresses exactly alike, then everybody will know what you believe. No, they just know how you dress or that you have a really bad sense of dress. But that's not what the Bible has called us to do. One of the scriptures in the passage we're going to read, in fact, it's 1 Peter 2, 
1 Peter 2 and 9, says that we are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that we might declare the praises of him who called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. We are a chosen people. We are chosen to be who we are as we live for Christ. That doesn't mean that when we get saved, we don't have to take the things that we're doing wrong out of our life. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying when we are saved, we are to take the sin of our, out of our life, we are to be filled with the Spirit of God, and we are to serve God as the unique person that God created us to be. Right. They don't want the world. That's right. Now, they'll slip up and it'll flash back, but they don't really want it. The minute they do it, they know they've done wrong. Exactly. It's exactly right. And and that's that's what we're called out of the world. That's what we're called from is from a life of sin. And uh, too many people have have misconstrued this to be that we're called out of sin but then we're called to to act exactly like the pastor or exactly like the Sunday school teacher or exactly like the person that sits next to you. That's not the case. We are to live a holy, godly life, but we are to live it as the unique individual that God created us to be. And I think we have stymied growth in churches from time to time because we didn't talk to people about that. We didn't teach it that way. When, when we all come in here, if we all came in here, and we all walked out of this place thinking, acting, talking, walking, and everything exactly alike, we're going to reach just a very small group of people. And it's going to be those that respond to those that think, talk, and act like that group of people. So we have to remain as unique and an individual as God created us. Right? Remember, Jeremiah said that, that God knew exactly what his calling was before he was formed. Now, if we were all supposed to be exactly alike, then there would be no need to say that because he would just say, we're all created exactly alike and we all have the same purpose. That's not what he said. We are unique in the way that God created us. Thank you. Now, to be a a royal priesthood and a chosen generation and all of these things that Peter talked about, it could be, it could seem to be a very heavy responsibility. And almost to the point to where when we read that scripture, we think that Peter probably would have wanted to put on the end of it, so don't mess it up. Look at that scripture again. See if that wouldn't fit. When you think about Peter and how he was. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. So don't mess it up. I think that's what he really wrote. Just got lost in the translation. That's right. The problem is that every day there are opportunities to mess it up that come along. But as often as those opportunities to mess it up come along, so do our chances for living a godly life. How do these chances arise? Well, in the way that we, we treat those that we come in contact with on a daily basis, the opportunity to, to treat the forgotten with kindness and with compassion, 
by separating ourselves from ungodly talk and ungodly attitudes, by obeying God even when it's not the popular thing to do, by hungering for righteousness in a culture that says, just do whatever you, whatever you want, whatever feels good, just go do that. Those are the ways that we separate ourselves from the world and still stay as unique as the God, person God created us to be. The good news is this. God does not leave us to fend for ourselves in those areas. He gives us mercy. He gives us help to be the unique creature that he has created us as, to live as Christ did, and all the while living differently from those around us. Starting to make a little bit more sense now? 1 Peter 2, verses 1 through 3. <clears throat> Therefore, rid yourself of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow, grow up in your salvation. In these scriptures right here, Paul or Peter <clears throat> revealed both the negative and the positive foundations of holiness, which is an essential ingredient in the character of God's unique people. He begins with a, lot, a, a, a list of five ugly sins of attitude and speech that primarily come from loving ourselves. Number one, malice. Malice is basically evil spirit, spiritedness or ill will. It's one of those things, as most of these other things are also, that are not only prevalent in the world, but if we're not careful, they also slip into the church. <clears throat> Second, he said deceit, a deliberate dishonesty that tries to conceal an unworthy motive. Hypocrisy. This has to do more with uh, false piety or righteousness that is not sincere. The meaning of the word, this is interesting, the meaning of the word hypocrisy comes from its use in Greek drama. In that day, since they didn't have the kind of stage makeup and, and all the special effects that we have now when they make movies, when somebody was going to play a part, they would use a mask. And when they used that, they held that mask up, they would also mimic that person's uh, mannerisms and speech and all of the things, and they held that mask up, and that person in Greek drama was called a hypocrite. Not the way we talk about hypocrites, but because they were pretending to be something that they weren't. And that's where we get our word hip hypocrite from. And Peter's saying that we need to get rid of the hypocrisy, playing to be someone that we really aren't. During his ministry, Jesus encountered and routinely condemned hypocrisy. And it's amazing where most of the condemnation was headed. His condemnation was headed to the religious leaders. The leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees. Because often their public displays of piety or holiness were calculated to gain the praise of their neighbors. They made sure everybody was looking before they stood up and prayed. They made sure when they went to the offering to give the offering... It's a five... And that is what Jesus was condemning them about. Everything they did, they only did it for what people would say when they looked at them. And Jesus said, you're being a hypocrite. 
you're putting on a mask of something that you're really not. The next one is envy. Envy suggests a resentfulness toward others that breeds discontent. In other words, I want what they have, and if I can't have it, I'm going to get upset and maybe even pitch fit. That's what it does. And the last one he lists is slander. And, you know, it's amazing how these are in the order. It was no in particular order. But it just so happens that slander also follows envy in real life, too, sometimes. This is an action of telling backbiting, destructive lies by a person wanting to hurt someone else in order to advance themselves. So sometimes when there's envy, you find that a person will actually start the, the slander thing to get back at that person so maybe they can get what that person has. So Peter said up front, right out of the box, get rid of those things. They have no place in the lives of God's people. So I guess at this point we could either have an altar call or we could continue on with the lesson and I guess we'll just continue on with the lesson. Peter didn't just say get rid of them. Instead he said to replace them with a hunger for spiritual food. This is the next verse. And that spiritual food is God's Word. He used the analogy, and I believe this is why he used it, the analogy of babies and milk, because I think it represents the impatience and desire that a baby has when it's hungry. If you have a baby that's hungry, what are they going to do until they get fed? They're going to cry. They're going to scream. They're going to kick. They're going to do whatever they can do because they want it so badly. And that's the analogy that Peter used. He said that's how we should be about the Word of God. We should be just like a baby and milk that we should crave it and we should do everything we can do to get that sincere Word of God. In other words, we're supposed to have a voracious appetite for pure spiritual milk because we know that that is what will help us grow. It's the Word of God and the truths in the Word of God that will help us to grow as Christians to be what we're supposed to be. Peter even went on to suggest that this was just a reasonable step. Doing that is only just reasonable. Why? Because you've already tasted a little bit of it. You've tasted it and you know it's good, so it's only reasonable to think that you would just be going after it with everything in your, your, your whole mind, body, and spirit, you'd be going after it. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4-10. through 10. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in the scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. And a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people. This is that verse we read earlier. A chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, 
a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. That's an important scripture. We'll come back to that. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. In the context of exhorting believers to lead holy lives, Peter used a, a building metaphor to assure his readers that even though they might have been rejected by their neighbors, so had Christ himself. And in spite of that, they still belonged to something special or holy. He went on to say they were built, being built into a spiritual house. He called Christ a living stone. He went on to call us living stones. Now, as I read, I was reading through this whole metaphor of, of building this spiritual house, it really made more sense to me than it had ever made before. As members of this unique body, and having already purified ourselves, Peter was saying that these people were ready for a spiritual ministry as a priesthood. In other words, you have done all of these things. You have been saved. God has purposed you with this unique purpose in your life. And there is a special calling and a special ministry as a priest. You go, well, I don't want to be a priest. Not priest in the sense that the way that we think of it in our day to day, but a priest as a person that can go to God directly. In identifying Christians as living stones, which, by the way, again, was the same description he used for Christ, Peter directly associated us as believers with the nature of Christ. Christ was a living stone. You are living stones. So there's a connection there. And then he goes on to say, with these living stones, God will build a spiritual house or the church. Now, when we talk about the church, I'm not talking about a church. I'm not talking about an organization of churches. When we talk about the church, we're talking about the church of God, not the organization of the church of God, but the church, the kingdom of God that has been established on this earth. That is the church. What we are sitting in today is a church. There's churches all over the country, and people sitting in them this morning, some of them are part of the church, and some of them probably aren't. But there is a church, the church of God that has been established from the time that Peter wrote this, this passage of Scripture that we're reading today. We are part of the church that has been established. So as we talk this morning, let's make sure we don't get the church and a church confused here. Individuals make up a church, and then those churches make up the church. Now, it doesn't lessen the importance of the local church by any means. It also doesn't lessen the importance of the members of that local church. What can happen is we start talking about the church, this church that was established back in the, in the, at the day of Pentecost and started and grew from there. And if we're not careful, we will take away from the importance of the local church and the individuals that are inside that church. We can't do that. 
Because without the individuals in a church, you have no church. And without that church, you can't have the church. See if this makes sense. In 2008, Orthodox church officials in Russia discovered that one of their church buildings had disappeared. Just poof, gone. A 200-year-old church building northeast of Moscow had gone unused for a decade. But the Orthodox Church, which was experiencing growth, was considering reopening the church building. And that's when they discovered that the building wasn't there anymore. And they decided to look into it and see what happened. After investigating the matter, the church officials decided that it wasn't aliens from outer space that took the church. Instead, they said that the perpetrators were villagers from a nearby town whom they said had taken and sold the bricks from the building to a businessman. For each brick, each brick, the thieves received one ruble, or about four cents. This two-story church facility did not go from being a building to not being a building in one bulldozing stroke. Rather, the bricks were apparently chiseled out one by one by lots of people. In the same way, some churches not built of bricks, but as Peter described, living stones, or more plainly, us as Christians. Some churches today are not being reduced by one fatal stroke, but rather by Christians, one by one, choosing not to be involved. Well, I'll just stay home and watch the TV preacher. Well, I'll just read my Bible and pray. I just don't want to get involved in organized religion. I'm going to do my own spiritual thing. And each decision like that means one less living stone. And in the end, the church intended by God to be the display of Christ's glory is chiseled away one brick at a time. On the other hand, each person who gets involved helps to build up the local church, which in turn helps to build a spiritual house to the Lord of living stones where Christ is glorified. So see, we have a purpose. We have a specific purpose. If we don't find that purpose, or if we refuse to accept that purpose and that calling that God has on each of our lives, we will find that each church as a body will be chipped away one brick at a time, just like that church in Russia. And then all of a sudden you turn around and you look around and go, where'd it go? One brick at a time. I remember when we built this building, one of the things that we did as, as part of the building fund is we had this big chart thing. And it was divided off into little blocks. And there was a dollar amount on each block. And it was basically represented how many blocks it took to build this auditorium and the walls on the outside here. And you could go and you could buy one little block on that thing and you could give that money towards that. And basically it's kind of like what we're talking about today. Because as you saw those blocks being filled in, you could see that the building was being built, 
one brick at a time. The church, the local church, is built one person at a time. And as the local church grows and thrives, then that in turn builds the church that God has established on this earth. But without the individuals, it can't grow. Here's something else that points to the importance of you and I being a part of a church that makes up the church. When Peter mentioned the holy priesthood and offering spiritual sacrifices, I believe that it suggests that the church that we are a part of today transcended the Jewish temple in importance and quality of ministry. I believe Peter was saying that that Jewish temple and, and all that went on there, that's not what's important anymore. You see, the temple was the holy place in Jewish society. But Peter's now saying there is, a, there is another church that's being built that is way past what that Jewish temple was. And most importantly, it's made up of you. That's right. exactly right. And that church that's being built is speaking of you and me. And look at this. There's, here's something that pe a lot of people still don't understand. Since, remember I said a while ago that we are all priests? And you say, well, I don't know if I want to be a priest. Since we as believers are priests, it means that we can approach God directly and we no longer need a priest to intercede for us. In the Old Testament, the best you could do was to bring your sacrifice to the priest, and he had to go offer that sacrifice to God. That's right. And we had no choice. If, if you were just an individual back then, you had no choice. You could not go to God yourself. But now Peter's saying, we are a holy priesthood. We can go straight to the throne of God ourselves. It's amazing. And then Peter threw in that, so don't mess it up. In verse 6, Peter refers back to some writings in Isaiah that point out to this precious chosen cornerstone laid in Zion, Jesus Christ. He is the essential part on which the building stands. Remember, we are living stones put together to build a spiritual house, and now that we see that the cornerstone that is, it is all built on is Jesus Christ. So what significance does a cornerstone have? Good building in Palestine was often constructed similar to the way that we built this church. What they would do, it was made out of the building was actually built out of limestone bricks, cut in a local quarry, but before they would start the building, they would dig a trench, which we did here in the building. I was holding a shovel myself. Um, 
we did a, dug a trench all the way around the perimeter of this building, probably that deep, about that wide. <clears throat> and all, in that trench was poured concrete. Now, they didn't pour concrete. Instead, what they did is they took rocks and lime, and they put it in the trench until it would settle. <clears throat> and then once it would settle, they would put these long oblong blocks on top of that. And then the cornerstone would be at the intersection of where the walls would be. That was the stabilizing factor. And the cornerstone was a large, broad, square stone that rested at the intersection of the walls. Now, the importance of being square was this. If your cornerstone wasn't square, your walls wouldn't be straight and your rooms wouldn't be square. If you build a building, maybe you've seen this happen before, and you start laying block, if you get that first one off just a fraction of an inch, and the next one off just a fraction of an inch, by the time you've got a two-story building, you've got a wall that looks like this. Why? Because you didn't have a good foundation. Peter was saying it was important that Jesus Christ was the cornerstone because it was this perfect foundation upon which this church is built. The correct cornerstone was a determining factor in everything else that followed in the building process. The building could stand without the stability and the strength provided by the cornerstone. But with the cornerstone in place, it could never be shaken. Some of those buildings that were built in the time of Jesus are still there in some form. And most of them, if they're not there, they're just because men tore them down, not because they fell down. That's right. That's right. The cornerstone affects everything in the overall design of the building. And so does Jesus Christ affect all those who have pledged to build their life upon him. Verses 7 and 8 present a clear contrast between believers and unbelievers. While this stone or Christ is precious to believers, disobedience causes unbelievers to stumble and fall. The same stone. It's precious to us because it's what our foundations build on. But for those that aren't believers, it's nothing more than an, an annoyance. And this fall is fatal because they disobey the message, and to do that is to reject the salvation that's offered by Christ. Because that cornerstone, Jesus Christ, is our only source of salvation. If we reject that cornerstone that is Jesus Christ, and we refuse to build our life on that, then we have created a fatal flaw that will end in destruction. So the contrast is between believers who in faith have accepted Christ as their Savior and the unbelievers who in their unbelief are destined to face Christ as a judge. 
We have a choice in how we see Christ. We have a choice that we can say, I see him as a cornerstone in which I want to build my entire life, or I refuse to do it and I will face him as a judge. Peter summarized the uniqueness of believers in the church age. Verse 9 says that they are chosen. Chosen. Now the importance of that, at one time, the only people that were chosen were the people of Israel. The Jews. They were God's chosen people. From the beginning of all of this, they were the ones that God chose to reveal himself to. Jesus Christ. He was a Jew. He came to the Jewish people. But Peter's saying, now we are chosen. God chose Israel from all the other nations to be this special people, but now it applies to us as believers. Christian believers are called a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. And in this kingdom of believers, every person is a priest, and every person is called to be holy, as God is holy. So Christians are a unique and special people, not just individually, but also peculiar and special from the world. Because God has chosen them for himself. See, we are unique in the way we're created, but we're also unique in the way we live our life as Christians. Because we don't live like everybody else. He has called us out of darkness and into his wonderful light. That's the point right there. Even though we, we are unique, we are walking in a light as opposed to walking in darkness as we did before. And Peter concluded that these people, he said, were not a people at one time. You weren't always a people. And that was a direct reference to us as Gentiles. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. That's us. And because we are God's people, we are also recipients of His mercy. Where in times past the Gentiles were not considered anything but dogs, we are now His people. By divine grace and mercy, we are called to be the sons of the living God. So we're created as unique beings. We are called to a unique place in the kingdom of God for a unique ministry. But here's the best part. When we are all doing what we are called to do in that unique place, together we form something that is built on the foundation of Jesus Christ that cannot be shaken. There's a quote I want to read. The pastor named Kirby John Caldwell. He said, there are two great moments in a person's life. The moment you were born and the moment you realize why you were born. I hope that we can go from here today knowing that why we were born is that we have a place in the kingdom. Why we were born is that we have a unique calling. Why we were born is that we have a unique place that only we can fill. As Christians, we are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. 
What this means is we have been set apart by God to be representatives of His character here on earth. A chosen people. When people look at us, they should get a glimpse of what God is like. But if we're not careful, we can become so immersed in the things of this world that often we don't pay attention to what our responses to circumstances reveal about God and His relationship with us. We lose track and we forget that people are watching us and we get so caught up in our everyday life that we forget that people see us as a reflection of God and sometimes that's not a very good reflection. Jesus said, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Not praise you, but praise your Father in heaven when they see your good deeds. God has called us to be just like Jesus so that through us people will see God and be attracted to him. And through the power of the Spirit in our lives and by the grace and mercy of God, we can go forward and fulfill the purpose that he has for each and every one of us today. And that is this. Living as a unique individual that we are created to be. Living as God's unique people in the way we live our lives. Differently from the world in our values. And working together to reach the world with the gospel. God bless you.